You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. All right, well, we're in Jonah, right? Jonah chapter 3. Um, we have uh, bypassed the whale now. We've gone through the whale of the belly and come out the other side, so to speak. And uh, we are now on our way to Nineveh. Um, this is quite exciting. Um, this, I almost preached chapter 2 and chapter 3 together um, last week. I thought about it, and it worked well in my mind. I, and then the Lord said, stop, just preach chapter 2, preach chapter 3 another day. So we're now in chapter 3, um, following the obedience that God has asked me to follow. But it's really interesting because chapter 2 and chapter 3 are quite similar in a lot of ways. You could literally preach the same message from them. But on the other hand, you could preach totally opposite messages. Um, Not opposite in character, but very distinct messages from these two chapters. And that's what the Lord has called me to do this morning. So um, if you would uh, just bear with me, we'll recap briefly the story of Jonah for those of you who have not heard it or those of you that Um, need a recap like me, have short-term memories, and so you don't know what happened two weeks ago. That's okay. Um, What happened thus far is that God said to Jonah, who was a prophet, get up from where you are, go to Nineveh, tell them that what they are doing is no good, um, and it will be great. And Jonah said, I don't think so. And he got on a boat and went to Tarshish, and there was a big storm, and the storm was his fault because he was disobedient. And so God caused this massive storm, and the sailors were like, Who are you and why did you bring this calamity upon us? And Jonah said, I serve God. And then they freaked out um, because they knew about this God. And then they worshipped God and threw Jonah overboard as an act of worship to God. God blessed them for that act of worship, calmed the storm. They were okay. Jonah sunk to the bottom of the ocean, was tangled in seaweed, said, I don't want to die apart from the presence of God. So, Lord, I just want to be near you. And he looked to God and God appointed a large fish who went chomp and swallowed up Jonah. Okay, this is the part of the story that all children love. And then Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days in which he wrote a prayer, which was chapter two. And he said, Lord, you saved me. I'm in the belly of a fish, not exactly what I was thinking or hoping for in salvation, but nonetheless, I will praise you. And because of that true repentance, God said, I will now spit you out. And there you are, just a short hop, skip and a jump from Nineveh. Now go to Nineveh and preach the message of repentance to them. And Jonah says, yes. And that's where we are today. So if you would stand with me for the reading of the word, we are going to read the entirety of Jonah chapter three. Like I said, two and three are very similar, um, even to the fact that they each have 10 verses. Um, and there's so many parallels here and I won't get ahead of myself. We'll just read the word and see where God takes us. Um, Jonah chapter three, Jonah goes to Nineveh. <clears throat> Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message which I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, getting a day's journey in, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And then he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
let man not feed uh, let them not be fed or given water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth let them call out mightily to god and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his own hands who knows god might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we would not perish and when god saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The more I spend in the book of Jonah, the more I love the book of Jonah. It's always been a great children's story, and that's what it's been to me. Shame on me, right? There are some stories that we ascribe to children's Sunday school time, and we think they're great stories for children. And so I've always just kind of in the back of my mind thought, this is a great Sunday school story. But the more I spend in this book, the more I realize I could spend months, even a year in this book, and learn and learn and learn and learn. Oh my goodness, this is fantastic, four chapters, and I'm so glad we're in this book. I'm just going to walk us through this chapter, um, and we're going to glean nuggets um, from it, Lord willing, and, and he showed me some things this week that were interesting to me, and I hope they apply to you as well. So we're going to start just in verses 1 and 2. Um, encountering Jesus changes you, right? Um, so here's how this looks. The very first couple chapters, first verses of the first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this is chapter 1, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, for their city is great and their evil calls out against me. And then if you read the first two verses of chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh and call out against the message that I have for them. They're very identical, Right? Um, Lord calls to Jonah, says, go out. Um, Jonah receives the same call that he got in chapter 1 that he gets in chapter 3. Identical call. Nothing has changed about what God has asked him to do. The Lord has not changed in two chapters, right? The Lord is the same. The message that God wants him to preach is the same. Um, The city he was sent to, the same. There's only one difference in this chapter and it's jonah right i mean jonah was in chapter one to be sure because god said jonah arise Um, but he was different right Um, jonah is different in chapter three than he was in chapter one he was physically different and he was spiritually different after his encounter with the whale because encounters with jesus change you you can't encounter jesus and not walk away different than you were before Take this for example. Spiritually, Jonah had a renewed trust and dependence in God for his salvation, right? In chapter 2, we read that he confesses that salvation belongs to the Lord. A, he didn't have the right to determine his own salvation. He could not save himself. That's an eye-opening experience. And two, because of that, he realized he's not God, and he doesn't have the right to determine anyone else's salvation. So when it comes to the city of Nineveh, Maybe he needs to submit to God. So he has this new perspective. He realized that he trusts God for his salvation and for all salvation. So spiritually, he had been changed. But physically, he had been changed as well. Um, There's historical record of people being swallowed by whales and coming out alive. Um, The whalers had cut the whales. I'll save you the details. But um, needless to say, there's historical record of men being swallowed by whales and then being alive after extraction from the whale. Um, But all of these historical records show the same change in the physical nature of the human being. Um, 
more than likely, based on what we understand about history and science, Jonah would have come out of this whale bleached completely white. He would have been albino and hairless because of the stomach acid and the intense 105 plus degree temperature in the belly of the whale. A hairless albino prophet of God, okay? Um, He would have been quite a sight um, in that day and age. Uh, So he would have walked into Nineveh being, I don't even know, he probably found some sort of clothing, but his clothing would have disintegrated, maybe naked, completely albino, hairless, preaching the word of God. That's going to get people's attention, I tell you what. Okay? So he was changed spiritually and physically when God said, get up now and go to Nineveh and preach this message. Now, despite his physical circumstances, probably the weakness from lack of food and water and the immense heat and the toll of the stomach acid on his body, he said, yes, I will go to Nineveh and I will preach that message because I understand salvation belongs to the Lord. See, he had met with God in this very distinct and unique way. And you don't walk away from encountering God unchanged. Um, The analogy that I used to use with my youth group was meeting um, Jesus changes you like if you are in the middle of a road and a semi-truck hits you, okay? Um, There is a distinct change in you. You cannot walk away from encountering a semi-truck and not be distinctly changed for it, right? More than likely, not for the better, okay? When you meet Jesus, there's the same kind of impact in your life, but the change is life-giving, okay? You cannot walk away from Jesus unchanged. There is a physical outward change, right? Because your habits change, your actions change, your words change, your countenance might even change. Have you ever guys been in the presence of someone who receives Christ while you're there and they've prayed the prayer with something has gone on in their heart? Something changes in their face. There's this joy in their heart and it just manifests in a physical way. There's an outward change that demonstrates the spiritual or inward change. Like Moses, when he descended from Sinai, right? They knew that he had been with God. His hair, I don't know, gray maybe, longer, I don't know. face just shone with the glory of God. You just knew that they had been with God. Because encountering God changes you, right? And you get to verse 3, and it says this. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, and according to the word of the Lord, um, Nineveh was a large city, three days' journey to travel across. Um, So where verses 1 and 2 are the same, verse 3 is not. Chapter 1, Jonah said no, ran away. Chapter 2, we don't have that proclamation. And chapter 3, Jonah says, yep, I'll go. In this chapter, he arose and went to Nineveh, and the city, Scripture tells us, is a great city. Um, Depending on how your translation reads, it might read differently. Mine actually inserts um, the, the city is a three days journey breadth-wise. It would take three days to travel across. Some translations read that it was a three-day journey like to the city from where he was spit out from the whale. Geographically, doesn't make any sense unless God took the whale, and he could, and moved it to a lake that was nearby, which, okay, he could do, but I don't know if he did will understand that the city of Nineveh is large, because I think that's the most plausible explanation here. Um, So this was a large city, a three-day walk from one end of the city to the other. Um, And uh, and so it takes uh, a long time to get through the city. Uh, And in many ways, does it really matter how big the city is? 
in reality, does it matter? Probably not. But Scripture gives us this detail, I think, for a distinct reason. Um, We know that in Scripture there are surface-level meanings, right? The very obvious meanings that we can glean right off the top. And then underneath that, there's just nugget upon nugget upon nugget. Do you guys watch Gold Rush on Discovery Channel? Am I the only one with that bad habit? Okay, thank you. I'm getting some amens in the back. Okay, good. Um, So you know when they're digging that glory hole or that shout, if they're going for the diamonds, they're digging deeper and deeper, and they're finding just good stuff after good stuff after good stuff. Scripture's like that. The more you dig, the more cool stuff you find in Scripture. So there's these great surface-level truths, and we don't want to negate those. But underneath that, there's some meat to the Scripture. And when it mentions this three days, I think it's meant to give us some context, some deeper understanding of what God is saying here. Mentioning three days in the context of Jonah, and what do you immediately think about? His three days in in the fish, right? Jonah spent three days in the fish. So he gets out of a fish after three days. And then um, this journey across the city is three days. So there's back-to-back, three-day kind of things going on here. Um, Perhaps um, we are to recall this fish epic, the deeper nugget here. Perhaps the Lord is telling us that although disobedience, which is what put Jonah in the whale, leads us to the threshold of death, okay, and the feeling of abandonment, which is where Jonah was, um, obedience might also lead us there. I want us to sit with that for a moment. Um, disobedience might lead us to the threshold of death and the feeling of abandonment. We get that. But so too might obedience. Jonah spent three days in the place of God's judgment in the whale. And now he needs to spend another three days in a place that is about to receive God's judgment. In a place that is about to be on the brink of death. He is entering into a three-day period with a city that is on the verge of dying. And they just don't know it. They are where Jonah was in the whale, but they don't know it yet. And his obedience is going to enter into their disobedience. So there's this little picture here. But um, it also reminds me of some other story in Scripture. We just go one nugget deeper. Jesus' obedience. There's another three-day story in the Scriptures. Um, where Jesus spent three days in the tomb, right? But how did he get there? Um, Our disobedience uh, put Jesus on the threshold of death, right? And on the threshold of abandonment from God, right? But then his obedience willingly entered into it for us. Our disobedience caused him to come to earth. He said, I'll willingly now enter into their disobedient lives and take on their sins. So then he died and spent three days in a tomb, experienced God's judgment, and it was horrid and painful and necessary. But Jesus relied on God during every single moment of that. Our disobedience leads to death, but Jesus' obedience leads to our life. So we see that with Jesus. We see that with Jonah. Um, His disobedience led to his own potential death and demise. When he was obedient, he had the opportunity to speak into someone else's disobedience. Um, And obedience can bring life in that context. I think this three-day journey is supposed to keep us focused on Jesus. I think this three-day journey says that there's a journey that obedient believers go on to enter into 
the lives of those around them that are steeped in sin. And we are to be like Jesus and kind of incarnate ourselves into people's messy lives, be part of that, go through it. And it's not necessarily going to be easy because it wasn't for Jonah and it wasn't for Jesus. But we're called to live that way sacrificially for the well-being of those that are around us. And we have the hope that Jesus' obedience gives us life eternal. Therefore, what can stand against us if we want to be obedient to Jesus? Verse 4. Jonah preached to Nineveh as one who had been changed by what he was preaching. Right? He wasn't preaching something he didn't believe in. He was preaching something he had most recently experienced. Repent or be far from God when death comes upon you. That's a message he understood, right? Folks, repent, Nineveh, or you're going to be far from God when death comes upon you. Because I was just there, right? Like, I didn't repent. I was in a whale, okay? If you repent, it will go better for you. Jonah can speak from experience. He just recently lived this. So he walked through the city proclaiming, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all scripture tells us that he said. There's no recorded in this epic anything else that came out of his mouth. All scripture tells us is that he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Um, But you have to think of this in terms of realistic Things. There is more conversation that happened than is recorded in Scripture. In all of the stories of Scripture, there's more than is actually recorded. The Holy Spirit gives the authors the inspiration to write what is written. But in historical context, if you were in Nineveh and an albino, mostly naked, hairless man came into town yelling at the top of his lungs, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, you're going to do what the sailors did. Who are you? Where did you come from? What, are you, what God are you talking Overthrown? Tell us a little bit. Could you give us some context? Naked, hairless, albino man, please. Um, and so, no doubt, there was some sort of conversation that was going on in the midst of this proclamation. No doubt he didn't smell good. No doubt people thought he was crazy. No doubt he attracted attention. And so, no doubt, people asked him questions. So, as he was walking through Nineveh, preaching... Um, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He was probably answering questions about his life. How did you come here? Why do you smell like fish? And why are you all white and hairless? And so he was able to probably say alongside of, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He was probably able to say, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I believe this because I just lived this. I was just in the whale. I disobeyed God. I love God, but I disobeyed him, and I was in a whale, okay? And now I look like this. But God saved me because I repented, and you can too. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so alongside this proclamation, he was probably preaching his testimony, as people asked and as the Lord permitted. Now, the word overthrown in this passage has two meanings in the original language. Um, one is overthrown. Okay, we all get that. The basic Nineveh will be overthrown. Not a great outcome for a definition of a word. The other definition means turned upside down. Uh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be turned upside down, which also doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, yet 40 days and, uh, you know, you hear stories in the Old Testament of, of the walls becoming crashing down when they marched seven days around it and literally nothing was left of the city. 
even to this day, there's really not much left of that city. Now, but here it says um, the city would be overthrown or turned upside down. And I think that there is something important here. Um, because both, while both definitions could imply destruction of the city, um, there is one of those two that implies a hope in a reversed state of being. Being turned upside down does not necessarily mean destruction. Being turned upside down means do a 180. Being turned upside down means I was doing one thing and now my life is upside down. It looks totally different than it did, but it's not destroyed. Right? So there's this promise in this proclamation. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be turned upside down. Yet 40 days and Nineveh could look totally awesome. Yet 40 days and Nineveh could be restored in a new way that it never knew before. It could also be totally overthrown. But in this proclamation of imminent doom, right, there's also this proclamation of imminent hope. So Jonah preached, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh will be turned upside down. But the choice was in the hands of the people. Will we have a hard heart and be destroyed? Or will we listen to what is being told to us by this albino naked hairless man and believe and our lives will be turned upside down and restored and will be made new in a way we never knew before? God's voice of proclamation against a city is also a voice of hope. Verse 5. The people see and hear this albino hairless message. And they believed. Who does scripture say they believe in verse 5? God. That struck anyone weird? They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. And that's really important. People believe God and repent. Um, it doesn't say they believed Jonah, but they believed God. They saw Jonah. They smelled Jonah. They heard Jonah's message. They investigated his testimony. And then they believed God. They repented of their sins. And their repentance was demonstrated by a physical and outer change to symbolize the inner change that had occurred in their hearts. Right? In verse 5, it says this. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Right? So here they are, hearing the word of God from Jonah being struck to the core, and then they said, we have to take off our old and we have to put on something new, something that feels different and a little bit rough because we've never experienced it before, but we need to somehow symbolize how much our inward parts have changed, so the only thing we can think to do is strip naked and put on burlap. Have any of you ever felt such repentance over your sins that that is what you have done? No, culturally, we just don't keep burlap around, right? Um... But that's still what we're called to do. That's the, you know, outward symbol. I feel so overwhelmed by the weight of my sin. The only thing I know how to do is strip naked and find the humblest thing I can do to put on and then fall before God in the dust and say, I got, I got nothing else, God. This is me at my absolute worst, and you still want me, and that's fantastic. I'm going to humble myself before you. And when Jonah preached, that's what the people did. When Jonah preached... They were struck to the core and they said, the way we've lived is wrong before God. 
We don't want to die apart from God. We don't want to be overthrown. We want to be turned upside down and live in a new way. And so they stripped naked and they put burlap on and they sat down in the dust of the earth and they cried out to God and they fasted. They were trying to show God, listen, something has changed inside of us. And we don't know how to, we don't, we've only known you for a minute, okay? But we don't know how to show you that we love you. We've only been a believer for a minute. We don't even know really how to worship you. The only thing we know how to do is strip everything away that we once were and be ready to be made new. And so Jonah continues preaching through the city this three days journey. And the city is quite large. And it took a while, it says in verse 6, for this revolution that was starting, this turning upside down of the city that was starting in one corner to reach the king's palace on the other side of the city. Verse 6 chronicles what happens when the king hears. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself in sackcloth and he sat in ashes. He led by example. He was the leader, right? Nineveh, great large city, impressive king, huge palace, a force to be reckoned with. And here's their leader who who saw a revolution, heard something happening in his city, and he could have had the response of, what's going on in my kingdom? Why are they all doing this weird thing? Soldiers, go and tell them to stop. But something struck a chord in his heart. And he said, whoa, there's a movement of God in my city, and I need to be a part of that. I want to lead the rest of my people. I want to demonstrate that I too get that my sin is overwhelming. I'm going to take off my robes and put on burlap. I'm going to sit in the dust. He rose from his throne, removed his royal robes, covered himself in burlap, and sat in the dust just like his people. A king just like his people. He led by example in what was right before God. He literally rose from his position of authority on the throne, right? These massive thrones that they sat upon. He literally rose from his throne, took off his kingly robes, the purple and the linens and the silk and the gold and all of the things that he was adorned with, which represented his earthly authority, the pride, the status of his life. And then he put on the humble sack that everyone else was wearing. He related to them in their sins. He said, yes, I too am your king, but I am a sinner like you. And I am no greater than you before God. We are all to give in this together. And then he sat in the dust. He didn't sit back on the throne. He sat in the dust. Dust which symbolizes the fleeting of life that we have. His heart was broken for his city as a whole. As a leader, he looked out over the sinful city and he went, I'm broken over this. As a leader, he said, I've led my people wrong. I didn't know it, but I did. And now I need to lead them right. So together, they embraced their sinful corporate nature as a city. We together as a city have been sinful. But individually, we've also sinned. His heart was broken for the corporate city and also for his own sin, the personal sin that he carried. 
And this points us to a story, folks. If you don't get this, all the stories in the Bible point to Jesus, okay? Jesus, who is the king of kings, right? Who one day rose from his throne. He was seated in heaven. And he rose from his throne. And what did he do? He removed his royal robes, right? He took them off. And then he put on flesh to relate to those on earth. He covered himself in flesh and joined his people in the dust of the earth. He descended from the throne, became like us to relate to us. Now, the one difference is the king of Nineveh was a sinful man. And the king of kings is not sinful. He is perfect. But even though he is perfect, he put on our sin. And he came down to relate to us so that we could be changed by him forever. Not that we would be overthrown, but that we would be turned upside down. He became like us. He led us by example. You want to know why? His heart was broken. His heart was broken for the whole world. It's corporate sin. It's love of the flesh for each person who carried their own individual sin. And so while this Nineveh king was sinful, Jesus was not. He was the perfect one who came to relate to us, to take our sins from us. And then the epic continues, verse 7 through 9. He issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By decree of the king, who is now seated in sackcloth in the dust, no one should eat, no one should drink, everyone should fast, even your animals. We will risk our cattle and our livestock starving. But we're going to do that because we believe that God will hear us. We believe it's the right thing to do. So the king led his people even further, and having joined them in the dust, Having only been a follower of God for minutes and yet with wisdom from the Spirit, he led his people to repent corporately, to cry out to God in a, in a citywide worship service, a citywide putting off of the old self, taking off the clothing that represented their old life and putting on the burlap which represented their humility before God and then crying out with one voice to God. Why starve the animals? I mean, like, Why? I had to look this up. I was like, what's the deal? They're just cattle. More than likely, the king said, we want our whole city to cry out. We want the hunger pains of the animals to reach the throne room of God so that he knows we're serious. The whole city cried out. Man, women, children, animals, so God would hear. They demonstrated a sincere repentance and a willingness to turn from sin by their physical actions. And then the king said, we do this because, who knows? I mean, really, who knows? But God might relent. And so we do this in the hope that we will not perish. And it was a humble statement. Who knows if God will fix this? Who knows if in, what, 40, 37 days, we might still be overthrown. But who knows? We might be turned upside down. And I think that was the hope that he had. And he said this, we'll continue following God for 40 days. We'll fast, we'll wear burlap, we'll sit in the dust. We'll mourn over our corporate and individual sin because it's the right thing to do regardless of the outcome now. Now we know the right thing and we will be right before God even if we're still overthrown in the end. We'd rather be near to God in death than far away from him in life. And that's what the king demonstrated. And then God did this wonderful thing. He relented. 
Isn't it great that God hears the cries of his people, uh, led by example? God forgives. They turned from sin to God. And the turning wasn't just in word. And it wasn't just a good effort for a few days, because this was a 40-day extreme fast. God relented because their hearts had changed in his presence. They had encountered God, and they had been changed because of it. God saw their desire to love him. Like Jonah when he was tangled in the seaweed, and all he could do was just remember God. The Ninevites, well, they didn't have anything to remember because they'd never met God before. The first thing and only thing they knew to do was to look upward and be humbled. And God saw that and honored that. And they received grace, not wrath, for that obedience. And that's the story of Jonah chapter 3, right? A great city that experienced a complete upside-downing of the way they know life. But the important part of this story is how it happened. Because this week is a lot like last week. Jonah's prayer from chapter 2 is very much a parallel to the story of Nineveh's repentance in chapter 3. But there is one key difference between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, Jonah was already a believer in God. He already knew who God was. And in chapter 3, the Ninevites were not. They did not know who God was. Jonah had to remember, but the Ninevites had to hear first the truth, where Jonah had known it already. There's a really important thing we need to take away. If you take away one thing from today's message, this is the thing that you need to take away. Um, A believer, through obedience and the sharing of their testimony, has the unique and beautiful opportunity to lead other people to Christ. But a believer who is disobedient and does not share their testimony is not doing God honor and is not being a missional Christian and will not see fruit come to bear in their life. Those with authority, those invested with the Holy Spirit, can lead people towards repentance or away from repentance. Jonah demonstrated both with his life thus far. He was going to run away from the call of God. He did not help the sailors come to faith. It was by God's grace upon the sailors' life that they came to know who he was. But in this portion of the story, Jonah's obedience and sharing of his story led towards a city coming to know who God was. You need to take away from the passage this morning that a Christ follower's Public testimony leads to non-believers coming to faith in Christ. Now, you don't save people with your testimony. God saves people. But you are called to share your testimony to be an instigator. You have been given authority to preach the gospel. You have been, given, you have been given authority to tell what has been done in your life. You've been given authority to say, my life was like this. But then I met Jesus, and my life is like this. Your life after Jesus might not be perfect either, and that's probably okay, right? Because we don't boast in our own self, like Paul says. We boast in Christ. You have a responsibility to lead other people by stating what life is like now with God versus what life was like before. 
when you were at rock bottom, when you were broken, when you were sinful, when you were mean to people, when you were broke, when you were rich, when you were hurtful, or when you had been hurt. You have a responsibility to say what that did to you and how God worked through those situations. Your changed life and your testimony will lead other people to Jesus. Jesus saves, you don't, but you are called to lead. Um, 1 Corinthians, if we jump to the New Testament for a moment. 1 Corinthians is a great book written by Paul, a great man who says of himself, I am the chief of sinners. Seriously, I'm a horrible, dirty, rotten scoundrel. But God called me to follow him, and, and my life is so much better for it. He forgave me, and now, through God, look at what I can do. It's a great testimony, right? He wasn't ashamed to say what his life was like. He had Christians murdered, and yet he became useful because he was obedient to God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, say around uh, 24-ish, I'm going to paraphrase for you guys because it's a chunk of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14 says that if a group of Christians gather together, like we have done this morning, um, and we talk about our Christian lives in Christianese, right? The special language that we have together as believers. And a non-believer, an unbeliever comes in and joins our Christianese huddle. And they're curious about the faith because they came to church to see a little bit more about Jesus. That unbeliever who hears us talking Christianese might see an unrealistic picture of what a Christian and what a Christian church looks like. Because of that, they will have an unrealistic picture of Jesus. And then they will say, to loosely paraphrase, paraphrase scripture, y'all are crazy. And that's not too far from the translation here. Okay? He will say you are out of your mind, I think is what my scripture says. But, if Christians gather together, Corinthians continues, to speak the truth about their lives, the things that their life looked like before and after Christ, not boastfully, but humbly sharing what God has done and is doing, even in and especially in the midst of trials that are unfinished and raw, then an unbeliever entering in and hearing the raw testimony of people's lives and the grace of God will become convicted of their sin and fall on their face and glorify God and repent of their sins. That's good news, right? I'm not even loosely paraphrasing scripture at this point. The secrets of his hearts will be disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God and declare that God is among you. How many of you would want to see that on a Sunday morning? Right? You want to see people come to church and hear the testimonies of changed lives, hear the scriptures, and then they go, before the service is over, I can't leave here the same way. I have to be different. My life must be upside down. It already is because I know it is. And their new life has begun because Christians are transparent. Not talking in code, not speaking Christianese, not arguing all the way to church in the car and then getting to the door and being like, we're great. Christianity is fantastic. Our family is in a great place. We're not broke. We're not on the verge of divorce. We don't have problems. Everything's great. Jesus is good. My life is perfect. He didn't have to fix a thing. Because that's what people see when they come to churches that don't share testimonies, that don't talk honestly about their lives before Christ in one-on-one -on -one conversations and publicly. Um, if you want to see new life in Christ happen around you, 
then you need to share your story with your oikos, right? Your peeps, the people that you're praying for. Um, I, I'm really bad uh, to remember to pray for my oikos. I'm being transparent with you all. So everywhere that I have a Bible or my iPad, a post-it note. It's like I got like 12 of them around different, every Bible's got one. Every, because every time I open up to preach now, I see my oikos list and I go, oh yeah, pray for them. Oh yeah, take some time for them. In my Bible, it's there. In my iPhone, it's there. It's all there. You want to see changed lives? Be honest with your oikos about your life before and after Christ. Get appropriately transparent with them about your life, your current struggles, your past struggles, and how God is working on those things and giving you hope and joy despite those things. Enter into their lives. Get off the throne and take off the... Enter into their lives. Say, I've been there. I know how that feels. Yeah, I've seen that. I don't have all the answers, but man, I've experienced that before and I've done that. No, man, it gets better. You know, I'm three years ahead of you on this one, and I can tell you it's going to be hard, but here's what got me through it. Jesus. And it sounds like a Sunday school answer, right? Because it is. There's a reason it's the Sunday school answer, folks. There's the reason, because it's true. God sent prophets to speak his truth in the Old Testament. God sent Jesus to relate to us in a tangible way in the New Testament. And now we live post-New Testament, post-Jesus New Testament, because Jesus has empowered us, right? He says, give you the Holy Spirit. I want you to go out, be my witnesses to the disciples, to make disciples, to go into the nations, to speak the truth. And then he sends them out to, in Scripture, in the Greek, their oikos. He sends them out to their own people. We are called to go to our own people, to our oikos, and be transparent about our lives. And if you do that, being really honest and vulnerable and transparent and willing to share, um, you're going to see fruit in time. God honors the testimony of a believer. And if you aren't preaching that Jesus enabled the difference between your old life and your new life, you aren't preaching the gospel with your words or your actions. Right? Let's let that sit with you. If you are not talking about your life prior to Christ and how Jesus worked in you, new life, then you are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are preaching, I did it on my own. You are preaching, I'm great and I don't need a God to enter into my life. But the reality is, we all do. The reality is, we all need Jesus. That's why we're here this morning. We're here because we need Jesus. And there are people in our oikos that need Jesus. And if we continually proclaim, hey, everything's great, God's great, I am wonderful, I've never needed a God to save me from anything because my life has always been perfect, then we're not preaching the gospel. And we need to preach the gospel. And that means we need to be transparent. So when you do it, preach it with humility but boldness. And watch and see how God will use you. If he can use an albino naked hairless man who smells like fish to revolutionize a major city in the ancient Near East, Surely, he can use us. We are neither naked, albino, or hairless. But God has uniquely placed us in the lives of people to minister. So today, we're going to worship, and the team's going to come up and lead us in a song. And this song is a little bit of a reflective song. Um, This song is going to be the one that says, As believers, have you put on the sackcloth, or has it been a while? Right? Because we can go a while on our own steam. And... 
And that's not probably the best place to be. This morning, take this first song and ask God to create in you a clean heart. Get off the throne of your life. Put on the burlap literally this morning, folks. I got strips of it here. Take a little bit of burlap and just smell it, the rawness of it, the roughness of it. Use it as a little physical action. Say, yeah, yeah, God, I'm humbled by my own sin. I need to repent of something this morning. Let God work in you in that and then allow him to use that repentance to be a testimony in leading other people to faith this week. So as you reflect, as you pray, know that this area is always open, whether it's a calm song or an upbeat song. Come pray to receive something tangible to connect you with the smells of the message, the feels of the message. And let God work in your heart this morning so that you can say truly and with certainty, there was something that hindered me. But I remembered God, and he restored me. I might have put on the sackcloth for a time in repentance, but God has turned my life upside down. He has restored and renewed me. He has created in me a clean heart. When you entered into history, you looked at the mess, and you met with us, and we were humbled. And then you said, give me back that. Give me back that burlap. Give me back that uncomfortable feeling of your sin, that shame and that guilt. Just give it all. Put it on me. And then you you took it all, and you went to the cross, and it was a heavy load. And as you were on the cross, you were covered with every single one of them. And then you died. You spent three days apart in darkness. That story is God. Death doesn't overcome you. You overcome it. And so all of that sin that you carried, the cross that you died for, when you lived again, that was gone. And we were made new. And we're still humble before you, God. And it's really good to remember how much you've done for us. But it's not just enough that you've forgiven our sins, Father. But in that, you've called us to live differently. You've called us to proclaim what you've done. We can't just keep this little secret to ourselves, because it's not a little secret. It's a big, fat truth. You died for our sins, and that you rose again and gave us new life to empower us to go out into the world and to share that truth with other people who still carry the weight of their sin. They don't have to. He died and rose again. Lord, I pray as we sing the next song too, that you would you would lift that burden off of us if it's not already gone and we're still holding on to it, Lord, that you'd take it from us. Sometimes we just can't pry our fingers away from things. But Lord, your Holy Spirit would come in and loosen the grips, shift away all of those things from our life that hinder us so that, Lord, we can rise, praise your name, Go into the nations, go into the cities, knock down the doors, knock down the walls, preach your gospel, tell the truth about our life and you, and see redemption in our city, Father. We pray for our city this morning. Sing with us. Well, here's the good news. 
God's forgiven all your sins. He's given you a great testimony and people to share with. It makes really good sense to follow through with that plan. Amen? Amen. So leverage Super Bowl Sunday for that, will you? Go in peace and share the gospel.